The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Podcast Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to the Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, the podcast, where we're going today. We're going to be discussing the movie Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. We're going to discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings of this movie about the J.K. Rowling Potterverse. And joining me today on the panel are Lynn Francisco. Hi, Lynn. Hello, Dom. And Thomas Sanjurio. San. I Sin. did it again. Uh, you did it again. It's Jays Like Ages. <laughs> Jays Like Ages. Said her ho. There you go. That's it. <laughs> yes. Okay. I I will get this eventually. I, eventually. I've only been, had like four opportunities to get it wrong. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep, keep coming back it. until you get it right. Okay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah. So we're talking about the movie Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. The, the first one uh, that came out in 2016. And we're talking about this now, obviously, because we're a little over a month out from the sequel, uh, Fantastic Beast 2, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Um, and Lynn, you were on the original Secrets of Harry Potter podcast panel, right? Yes, I was. Okay. I just, I, just, I thought so. And I forgot to check to make sure. But, uh, so you, you've been at this with SQPN for a while talking about Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so, I was not on those, but yeah, I, I actually joined the panel at episode 37. Okay. Um, so I think that was when we were starting to talk about Deathly Hallows. Okay. And, and Thomas, yeah. you've read all the books, seen all the movies? Yes. yes. I have, yes. Read all the books okay. and seen all the movies. So. Okay. So uh, same here, uh, although it's been a while since I've read the books. Uh, but I'm still, I still I still, think I, I uh, remember things pretty well. Um, so uh, let me first just kind of give – well, actually, first I want to do a little business. Uh, just to take a second, folks, to say uh, remember to like – Secrets of Movies and TV, the podcast on uh, our SQPN's Facebook page, if you can retweet us on Twitter, leave us comments there, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app, even on YouTube. We have our YouTube SQPN YouTube channel. We post these as audio uh, movies, so there's no video, but you could listen to it there uh, and then leave us a review in all those places. Share the podcast with your friends, please, because I say that's because that's the only way we grow is when you share the podcast with your friends, when you like it and, and by your action. There's no way we could buy enough advertising to really promote the podcast the way it deserves. We're not a big media company. Uh, we're not NPR. But, but you know, we think this is a, a, a good podcast and we, we hear from you folks who say you enjoy this. And if you do enjoy it, please share it with others. You know, share it on on uh, on social media and and do those things like to to like it. Uh, re we really appreciate it. And then I want to recommend two other shows from the SQPN network that are really good right now. We've restarted the Secrets of Star Trek, and we've been digging into a lot of uh, all of the series, including upcoming. We're going to be going back. But we, I know we talked about uh, Discovery's first season on this podcast uh, earlier this year. But we're going to go back and we're going to talk about each episode of Discovery as it comes along, as well as all the other uh, series. We're going to talk about Enterprise and even the animated series. So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, please be sure to go to sqpn.com 
slash Trek. You can subscribe to that. And then The Secrets of Doctor Who. We've been doing this for a long time, but I want to mention it now because the new season of Doctor Who is just about to start, and we're going to be talking about it. And this this is a season you're going to want to talk about, and you want to hear me and Jimmy Aiken and Father Corey Sika. We're going to be talking about this. This is, I think, um, the biggest change in Doctor Who since 2005 when they rebooted the series. So, you know, be sure to go to sqpn.com slash Doctor Who and subscribe to that as well. Okay. All the business aside, let's talk about Fantastic Beasts. Um, I, I kind of want to, you know, go back and kind of lay the groundwork of what what it is we're talking about here, uh, this movie and where it came from. Did, did either of you ever see the book that Ra- J.K. Rowling wrote mm-hmm. called yes. Fantastic Beasts? Uh, Lynn, you, you saw it and you and you read it at the time. I mean, read is kind of it's not it wasn't a novel. What was the book? Well, it it see it it read more like a reference book. So it was just simply a list of the various different magical creatures that existed in that universe. Okay. And and also too, there were these little cheeky writings on the margins between friends. Um and you know how in the old days, before all this electronic stuff, when you check out books from the library, you have a card, you have to sign the card, they stamp mm-hmm. a date in the card that says this book is due on such and such a date. And so I remembered that, well, at least my ver- um, my, my um, version of it had something like this, with all the names of the various char- characters that we know and love. And then, of course, there's some other like little notes um or actually, come to think of it, my version may have also said "property of Harry Potter" or something like this. I, I don't yeah, quite remember. Yeah, it's it was, been a I while. It was a movie. It was a movie prop that kind of based off of the the, the fact that Harry got these from uh, from his trip to Hogwarts initially. Right. Right. Yeah. The the so the book itself, the textbook, is mentioned in um, Philosopher's Stone or, or Sorcerer's Stone, if uh, for the American version. Harry Potter, the the first Harry Potter novel. It's mentioned as one of his textbooks, um, and and Rowling kind of took that little tidbit and developed it into uh, a fun accessory, in a sense. Uh, I think, like as you described it, Lynn, which is just sort of mentioning the the various magical creatures of that world. And then at some point later, I think it was 2013, if I read correctly, uh, Warner Brothers, uh, who had just finished all of those, what was it, eight Harry Potter movies, and all of the money that that goes along with it. Now that that was about to dry up, and they decided, well, how else can we tap into the Harry Potter golden tree uh, and get some of that golden money sap out of it? Uh, oh, let's base some more movies. And so they went to her, and and they came up with the idea of turning this book, which is a sort of a reference book, into five movies. Which is this is the first of five movies. Uh, so. And it features, uh, focuses on this character, Newt Scamander. And it takes place, uh, this movie takes place 70 years before the events of the first Harry Potter. And it takes place in New York City. So, um, let's start from there. Um, d- does this, does this, t- t- I'll, I'll start, I'll start asking, by asking you. Does this feel like they they're spreading? Uh, how does Bilbo put it? Like too much butter over too uh, too little butter over too much bread. Uh, I 
honestly, I love this movie. Um, okay. This is this is my favorite Harry Potter movie. <laughs> oh, awesome! Okay. I know that's I know that's probably sacrilegious, and someone's gonna <laughs> say that's horrible. You can't say that. It's not even really part of the main line. Uh, but there's there's so much that is right with this movie and the character of Newt and how Eddie Redmayne plays him on screen. Okay. Um, you know, as a teacher, I have a real soft spot for uh, for uh, autistic kids and that Redmayne plays it to the hilt as uh, Newt being this sort of, uh, you know, aloof kind of uh, antisocial almost character that's making his way through and he he understands uh, magical creatures, but he doesn't understand people. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of, well, unlike Harry, who, while he's the hero, everybody loves Harry because he's the chosen one. But exactly. Newt is the kind of not. Yeah. 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 Newt's, Newt's got that. Newt is just, he, he really isn't. He's, he's very much, uh, uh, you know, he's going to step back and try and stay out of the limelight as much as he can. Cause he just wants, uh, things to kind of settle down. Okay. And Lynn, Lynn, how does this movie fit w- for you? Is this movie, uh, are you going to be a, a heretic like Thomas and say that this is better than all of the other Harry Potter movies or, uh, or, 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 I mean, how do you feel about this movie in comparison to the others? Well, I can't really say it's better than or less than the others because in yeah. my opinion, it's different because yeah. it's set in a very different time frame. And I, I really appreciate that, um, that JK Rowling is going back to a different era because it almost sets up um, what you see in the later, the later Harry Potter um, right. stories, and so I, I think it's very interesting to see this, and also to see a different uh, magical culture as well. Here she goes to the United States, and of mm. course she uh, kind of manufactures a reason for him to go. Like there's this, you know, spoiler alert, uh, this uh, <laughs> creature that he wanted to return to. I think was it Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So that was his entire reasoning for going to the states. Of course, they have to also manufacture a, a, a little adventure to go along with it. So, oops, creatures escaped. Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> and it just and he just stumbles onto you know something else from there. So, I mean, it's it's a very interesting yep. plot device. But yeah, I can't really say oh I like this better than or or whatever because in my mind it's just different. You so, know, I. I kind of I, I I I agree with you that it is different. I, I do, and I do really appreciate the um, the different setting, the different characters. Um, we don't even see Dumbledore in this. I mean, there's all it's a whole new set of people. Unlike I don't think, like I think maybe Lita Lestrange might be the only person ref- uh, that we see a picture of who's from the Harry Potter, and we get references to Dumbledore, but we don't see him on screen. So. Um, so it is a it's a whole new set of people, a whole new circumstance. Um, I mean, it's there is a tendency, there is a, a a trend, put it that way, in in a lot of stuff today to do prequels. And this is kind of a prequel, although not directly, because this isn't about how Voldemort became Voldemort and Harry became the chosen one. This goes like, like it's almost like if you want to compare it to say Star Wars, it's not about how the Emperor became the Emperor. It's about how uh, the Emperor's master became the you know like grindelwald right. is voldemort's uh uh origin shall we say so uh so i i do appreciate that they kind of yeah they went beyond the first story to to make something new i i agree with you on that i like that idea 
I, yeah, I really but, like I like the concept of expanding uh, expanding the world so much uh, because I think one of the one of the things that all of us uh, Americans thought when we first saw Harry Potter well, was what about what about the schools here you know I mean <laughs> that's great <laughs> yeah. it's great to get a letter to Hogwarts but I'm in the states I don't think that's going to happen for me so uh, you know how does that right. all fit in you know I I have to say I'm a little miffed that at Rowling because the American uh, Wizarding School originally was supposed to be in Salem, Massachusetts, of course, which is where <laughs> I lived uh, when the, when I was reading all these books. And so, if, uh, you know, I was like, of course, it has to be here. This is the place. Uh, and then they changed it to some other, like, I forget even where Ilvermorny is supposed to be, but it's like upstate New York, I think it is. And I'm like, um, excuse me, what's in upstate <laughs> New York? That's, what's, what's so wizarding about that? So no, just, it's kind of funny. You know, there's actually a little, uh, we should maybe talk about it, a little controversy about, um, about how Rowling has portrayed uh, magic uh, American style. Um, and one of the things that comes up early on is this idea that uh, in in America, unlike in Britain, in America, wizards and they call them no, you know, we call them no mages uh, or wizards and muggles are not allowed to interact. Uh, they're not allowed to be friends. Um, they're not allowed to Obviously, if they're not allowed to be friends, they're not allowed to get married. Although somehow they're getting these children of nomads, uh, so so obviously some people are uh, g getting around that. Um, and it's it it's supposed to come out of um, the Salem witch trials and that we're on a hair trigger for more witch trials. And in fact, the one of the antagonists of this story is this group called the Salem, uh, the New Salem Preservation Society. Um, I've seen it referred to a couple of things, but I think in the, in the movie itself, it said preservation society. Um, and you know, where they, people want to have witch trials again and, and this sort of thing. And, uh, and it, it kind of sets up this system of, well, see in America, they're kind of racist against witches, uh, right. which I think, I think is sort of Rowling's kind of take on how in the twenties, which is when this is, uh, America was still, was more racist uh, concerning you know minorities than Britain was, and I think it's supposed to be a take on that. What do you think uh, about how um, how she set that up? Uh, that that difference between U.S. and and British wizarding. Um, Lynn, do you want to start on that? Do you, do you have an opinion on that? Oh, to be honest with you, it didn't even cross my mind uh, when I first okay. when I first saw that. It was just. Um, yeah, I did notice that that was very noticeable where they had a very strict no frater, fraternizing. Is that yeah. the word? Yeah. Yeah. So and in fact, with the, the nomad character, Jacob, I think that's his name. They yep. wanted to obliviate him immediately. But, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, he was probably meant to be a part of the adventure. And so they just didn't. And then, of course, mm -hmm. in the Makuza, um, I think. They were going to do that, but then Queenie managed to save him from that fate. So <laughs> she did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, that that's that was that was the one thing I really noticed the most. But to be honest with you, the um that connection didn't exactly cross my mind. So okay, you know. How about Thomas? Did, did any of that? Yeah. I mean, it didn't immediately jump to me until I started reading stuff about it. So I, I, it, it's not surprising. No, it, it was one of the first things that I noticed um, in okay. thinking about it because um, I, I like that time period. And, um, you know, that's the time period where you're talking about a lot of Irish immigrants. And um, there was there were a lot of people coming back from Europe, which is one of the things that Kowalski was doing. He was uh, he was part of that uh, 
that group that was sent out to Europe during the First World War. They were returning. And so they, they had a much broader view of the world than anybody back home. And uh, it's interesting to kind of see a different take on that, that, that you, can, you can kind of toy with different things because it's not as blatantly racist, but you still get across that same sense of uh, separation and of anxiety and stress. You know, one thing that, that is very striking is, is that the president of MACUSA, which it stands for the Magical Congress of the United States of America, uh, which is the equivalent of the Ministry of Magic in Britain. But the president of MACUSA is a black woman, which, right. you know, for the 1920s, that's that's pretty progressive. <laughs> that's pretty modern uh, and, and, and seems to be a somewhat deliberate choice on the part of the filmmakers and Rowling, I, I would think. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting the way that the difference in the way that they treat the goblins, too, because um, yep. they have a very different take on how the goblins interact with the wizards in the United States versus in England. Uh, they're much more they're much more uh, close to them and uh, they seem to be much more friendly with them ra- rather than this kind of stilted uh, professional goblins versus the uh, less professional wizards that are all around them. Right. That's true. That's true. They, yeah, there seem to be. That sort of American egalitarianism uh, at work there uh, in that sense, which is sort of an interesting contrast to the perceived racism or not even just perceived. I mean, the the real racism which existed. Um, So uh, I wanted to kind of talk about the the whole the story, the big story um, and the big villain, which is Grindelwald. And we get this this uh, somewhat extensive introduction to. You know, with the the classic newspaper headlines of, you know, uh, being shown to us, although they're the Harry Potter universe newspapers where everything's animated, uh, which is fun. Uh, but but we get these headlines about this Grindelwald who Gellert Grindelwald, who's at, on the loose. And he's, you know, so we, we, we quickly learned he's of the ilk of Vil, uh, Voldemort. He hates muggles, wants war between wizards and muggles, uh, that so on and so forth. He's, you know. He you know gets stamped with the evil stamp at birth, and that's he's a bad guy. I mean, it's it's not he's not a very complex uh, character. There's not a whole lot of um, uh, I still sense good in him uh, going on in this. Uh, sorry, I'm a Star Wars fan at heart. I, <laughs> I keep making Star Wars references. Uh, so, um, so what is like? So we learn in this again, folks. This is a spoiler filled podcast, so I'm not holding back here. We learn that the that the character Graves, the Aurora Graves, uh, which you know, hello, that the name is very clearly a sign that this is right. uh, Grindelwald. Uh, but Graves is um, is is Grindelwald in disguise. What's what's he after here? So he and he's trying to ki- find a a kid with um, oh, what do they call it? The the this, the obscurial, this, obscurial. This yeah, it's this this this. This um, obscure, this uh, unusual uh, power, a uh, very, very big power. Um, what's he? What's Grindelwald after here? What's he doing here in America? Um, did you get a sense of that? Like, I, I, it took me a little bit to kind of figure out what's what's going on in in with with Grindelwald. Um, well, I, I'm still trying to figure out where this places it in the timeline because we know a little bit about Grindelwald and his interactions with um uh, with Dumbledore. And yeah. that there was that there was some uh, communication there, that there was some issues with the wand between the two of them. And um, so I'm I'm, in, I'm interested in seeing, you know, where in the timeline this falls 
uh, for that because I really haven't, I, I haven't figured out and I, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't read too terribly much about it to figure it out, but, um, I haven't figured out where it falls in that timeline just yet. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I haven't really put that together either, but it just kind of made me wonder, well, um, couple of thoughts here. I think Grindelwald was also interested in, uh, like a pure blood kind of, um, kind of um, community yeah so we saw we've seen a little bit of that in the harry potter series um right. with voldemort um having his pure blood wizards followers so you know that's probably one aspect that may be coming back in later um later sequels but then as far as the obscurial is concerned if memory serves me right this is some sort of like a dark untapped kind of power that uh, a, a witch or a wizard um has that um, they have no control over it. And it makes me wonder if um, Grindelwald wanted to somehow tap into that darkness um, right. in some way to augment his powers or to use that for whatever, whatever goal he has. Yeah. Perhaps he thought if he, cause the, the obscurial usually manifests in a young child under 10 and therefore presumably uh, a child he, he thought he could control of course, we find out it's 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 an extremely rare type where it's a much older child uh, played. Oh, I forget what played by played by the same guy who ends up Ezra Miller, I think it is, who plays mm -hmm. the Flash in the Justice League movies, uh, the DC Justice League movie. Which I, I for the longest time, I'm like, who is that? So I IMDb didn't. Oh right, he's the Flash. So uh, so he's older and therefore less controllable, and that that threw a a monkey wrench into his plans. As far as where this lands in the um, in the in the in the sequence of events that we learn about in I think it's in Deathly Hallows where we learn all about the the right. wand, um, it's I I think we find we we at least find out when things happen in the Crimes of Grindelwald movie that's coming out in a month. Uh, from what I've seen from the trailers, because we're going to see Dumbledore and we're going to see that <clears throat> he will. Here, uh, Newt Scamander is in New York. Happened to be in New York. At the right time of the right place. There's no real sense that he was sent there on a secret mission, I don't think. Um, but in the next movie, he's specifically being sent by Dumbledore on a mission to Paris, I think is where that one takes place. Uh, so I think we're going to get a, more about that relationship and that and how Dumbledore and Grindelwald interacted. Um, and that perhaps this is after it. I think we're also going to see a young, um, What's, what's Voldemort's real name? Um, Tom Riddle. Tom Marvel or Tom Riddle. Uh, Tom Riddle. Yes. Uh, we're we're going to see him as well. Uh, presumably not David. Uh, is it, was it, who, was it David Tennant who played? No, Tom no, he Riddle? did. Uh, he did. Um, uh, Crouch. Uh, oh. Yeah. Bartemius Crouch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right, right. A young Crouch. Okay. Uh, but I forget who the actor was, but um, there are some of the actors from the Harry Potter movies who, showed up uh, in uh, flashbacks in the Harry Potter movies as these characters, they're actually are going to be in the Crimes of Grindelwald movie. So I think we're going to find out where the things are. But uh, my right. sense is, is those things have already happened. Um, so, yeah, I, and I, I you know, I, I thought uh, some of the things in this movie that were so great is uh, one of my favorite mm -hmm. moments is really early on. I rewatched it this week just to, to prep for it. And then uh, mm -hmm. the opening scene where you see only the back of Grindelwald's head and the haircut is a certain way. Right. And then when you first see Graves, his yes. haircut's exactly the same way. And I, I, I thought that was just such a nice flair to throw on to that to that yes. moment. 
Uh, that was do, very good. They yeah. do a really good job of playing up um, that uh, that character and, and who he is and and uh, what he's about. And you really do wonder, like you wonder even from the very beginning, what what's what his deal is. And then as as it goes along, it seems to be more and more and more. But then to really leave the reveal for Newt right at the end, I thought was a fantastic right. uh, move in the movie. Yeah, that's one of the things I liked about this movie is that it didn't just it's not simplistic. It's not just Newt versus Grindelwald. You know, it that that it the really the the there is the Graves slash Grindelwald is the bad guy. I mean, he's he's actually they're actually working against him. But really, the the fight is against ignorance about these magical beasts. I mean, that's really what Newt is about. Um let's talk a little bit about about newt and the magical beast because these these creatures were so great so imaginative um did you have a particular favorite like i think mine was the the little uh, I, I don't know the names of them but the little platypus that loved the gold and just kept <laughs> the just sneaking out the niffler right 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 the niffler love that little guy it was hysterical i mean there was such a nice they provided a, a nice break of the action and the tense you know, the tension in the movie with these little comedic bits. And I really thought that was very good uh, way to, to break up the pacing a bit. Uh, did you have a particular favorite uh, moment, a uh, creature moment uh, with you, uh, Lynn? I like the little bow trucky or bow truckle, I think is what it is. And yes. especially the one that was so attached to Newt. Yeah, no, and and the way he interacts with the whole group of them when he's talking to them, where he's like trying to get it to go back and it won't. (laughs) Right. This is why they made. This is why they are mean to you because you 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 get favoritism. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that that was really good. I mean, such imaginative creatures. Um, There's the uh, the the rhinoceros like creature. Oh yeah. That was in heat. Of course, you have to have this crazy like. giant creature in heat moment chasing Jacob Kowalski uh, (laughs) across the ice. Um, You know, those sorts of moments. But uh, one thing I kind of wish we got a little more understanding of is this, this creature that was the the point of him being in America. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what it was, if it's some creature from native American uh, mythology or something, uh, because like, maybe, Maybe it's a Thunderbird. Uh, that's because... what I thought it was. Okay. That, that's, what that. that's what it's called. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because so. we know the Thunderbirds are the, the Air Force Thunderbirds. The, their name comes from a Native American mythological creature, a uh, flying creature. Uh, but okay. And that's why there was lightning and, and storms at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think when, when you first meet it, um, he it's raining and it, yep. it, it you can tell that it's the creature that's causing it to rain because then the creature calms down and lands beside him and, and right. it dries out okay okay uh so let's talk a little bit about um uh tina um uh, well actually i want to kind of talk about kowalski first because uh, kowalski is a key character here he he seems sort of like a tag along but kowalski is the audience he is our proxy he right. is a muggle. He's being introduced to this magical world. Um, and and him seeing Newt's zoo of magical creatures is us seeing it and how we hope, you know, hopefully we would react to it. Uh, but he's such a great um, canvas. There's not. There's not a lot of backstory on him. We know he's a, a veteran, a soldier who served in World War One. He's a baker trying to open a bakery. But that's kind of it. Like, there's not a lot to the character. 
but yet there's something about him that's very endearing. What what is it do you think, Lynn, that that really made him such an endearing character? Uh, well, I wondered if it was perhaps just the way he interacted with the others, but also too just well, and you even mentioned it, his reaction to like the zoo, his reaction to the magical word world that he got exposed to. I mean, it's just this kind of you know childish wander wander that um that he gets to it um gets to it and i I think this is what makes you feel um some sympathy for him that you know he's thrown into this situation and you mm-hmm. just want to see okay how's he handling it and how's he dealing with it and you're you're just kind of cheering for him as as the film um, um progresses on yeah because he kind of gets stuck in the middle with you know the the switching suitcases, which is a classic, uh, actually it's a classic trope of movies of the comedy movies of the twenties. That just idea of you know switching suitcases and right. the, the messed up identity and all that sort of thing. Uh, Thomas, what do you think of uh, Kowalski and how the the role he plays in this plot? I, I love it. He's he does the um, the buffoon character so well because he, he doesn't overplay it. You don't ever feel like he's really a fool or anything like that. He's just, he's, he does not belong where he is, but he's doing the best he can to make, uh, to make it there. And, right. um, I, I think my favorite moment with him though, is when they're sitting around the dinner table with Queenie and she's just made that fantastic dish for him. And he asks for her to stop reading his thoughts for a moment so that he can give her a genuine compliment. Right. And, and that's such a great moment. It just tells you everything you need to know about that character. Uh, not not stop reading my thoughts because it's freaking me out or anything, but I just want to give you a compliment and I want to say it without you just reading my mind to, to hear it. It's such a genuine moment with him because he's obviously very taken with Queenie, right? Uh, uh, but it's such a genuine moment uh, of 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 uh, just have a per, of personality of gentlemanliness of just yeah, it's he's such a likable character in that mm-hmm. in that moment. Uh, you're right. Let's talk about the. Um, I was going to talk about them before. But let's talk about them now is um, Tina and Queenie. And since we mentioned Queenie, let's start with her, even though Tina is more important to the plot. But um, Queenie, I I really liked her. I mean, she because she's obviously uh, she's obviously beautiful, but her power is uh, was Legia Lemens, which yeah. is mind reading. And as a beautiful woman, she knows what she even says, you know, Oh, don't worry. That's what most most guys think when they first see me, and I, I'm uh, I'm used to it by now. And you can imagine that's got to be a tough thing, you know. And and maybe it's a little bit close to reality in some ways for for many women. Uh, now I'm speaking out of school here because uh, I'm not I'm not <laughs> a woman. But maybe Lynn, you could you know, jump in on this one. But this idea of you know um, uh, having to deal with though that that sort of interaction to begin with, but yet she says such a uh, 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 um, a friendly attitude the whole way through. What do you think? What did you think of that portrayal, Lynn, from from your perspective? Well, I mean, I thought. Oh, I'm just tra- trying to remember right now. I'm sorry, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, because um, I think our first um, encounter with her, yeah, she may have been doing some sort of household chores or whatever. And she right. she wasn't exactly all dressed up, but you know the way that they portrayed her putting something, some sort of a dress or something on, 
in Kowalski's presence. You know, it just kind of made me wonder what were they trying to get at there? Because, I mean, Kowalski obviously had his attention. It's like, oh, my gosh, what a beautiful woman, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, um, yeah. And if if she says, yes, so I'm used to this. um, Yeah. Unfortunately, it is kind of a, um, a fact of life that, you know, some have to deal with that you get this unwanted attention. But, you know, it's pretty much how you deal with the unwanted attention. Do you deal with it with hostility or do you deal with it with humor or do you deal with it with grace? And so I think that's what they were trying to portray um, with the Queenie character. Okay. Yeah, because it was kind of she was kind of flirty, wasn't she? Uh, Mm -hmm. When she was doing like the getting dressed bit. Uh, I um, think they were both flirty to each other anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I get the sense she doesn't, she's not around um, uh, other men very much. I think Tina keeps her away from, from guys. <laughs> right. Well, and I think, I think it was really interesting because um, you, you got this, these kind of undertones of like uh, the Betty Boop kind of character where there was this oh, yeah. real, like just easygoing, uh, naturally flirtatious. Uh, and, and, you know, and then there was also the sense that she could take care of herself because she could know when she was getting too far by just reading someone's mind and saying, oh, okay, now we, now we got to put the brakes on this because this is, yep. you've, you've gone too far with it now. And so, so you kind of got that sense that she knew where she could, where she could push the boundaries to and, and have it be acceptable. Yeah. And later on when she has, when she's working to get them out of the Makusa headquarters, she uses her ability and that, and her natural attractiveness uh, to kind of manipulate uh, or maneuver these guys uh, was it Abernathy, which was Tina's boss. Um, you know, she very deftly maneuvers him in such a way as to let her go. And then the other guy, the guard, who she just has to blackmail him straight up. Oh, by the <laughs> way, I'm going to tell your girlfriend about what, you know, that you've been stepping out on her if you don't, you know, uh, let me go. I mean, she's like, when, when all else fails, Goldie has a, or Queenie has a, um, a Queenie Gold, I think it is. Yeah, Queenie has a a backbone of steel, and you better be careful. Right. Uh, yeah. So I liked her. And then we have Tina, her sister. And and so Tina is the classic character of um, the the little guy who's supposed to be so much more. You know, we, Rowling does has that sprinkled out through her books, where um, she's used to be an Aurora. She, uh, we find out that she ended up getting uh, busted down to you know uh, this really uh, this permit office, the wand permit office, uh, uh, because she um, she encountered the 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 uh, uh, what do they call her the the, the great, this really great name Bear, Mary Mary Lou Barebone is the woman from the New Salem Preservation Society, and she found her beating a child, and she used her magic to stop her and and that of course is a violation of uh, all kinds of laws and rules uh, and they had to obliviate her i think obliviate is a, a usually we would say obliviate means like destroy uh, but right. uh, but to make oblivious is the is i think is what the spell is supposed yeah. to be i mean it is supposed to be um so she gets busted down and so we have this classic character of um uh, i like it's a classic cop character i was the hot shot cop now I I broke the rules and now I'm back on the bottom. But I know that I've still got to go out and you know break the big case and you know and then I'm gonna go do it. And it's it's so she's sort of like that hard boiled cop. She's Bruce Willis in this, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Die uh, hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, and and yet there's also a bit of a a bit of a romantic tension between her and Newt, which is never fully uh, blossoms in this um, until the very end. There's a hint of because, uh, as you mentioned, Thomas, that Newt is is get this very socially awkward is 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 putting it mildly right <laughs> this social uh, inability um and yet he comes enough out of his shell to kind of give her a sense that he does like her um at the end so there's this connection between them uh and i just i found tina to be they didn't overdo her right i mean how do you feel mm-hmm. about the tina character i i think they did i think they did a really good job with her and because it could have been it, it could have been a lot of things and that's I, the thing that I really love about all of the characters in this movie is that they could have been caricatures. Every single one of them could have been easily written as a caricature, mm-hmm. but the actors rein it in with these small quirks and these uh, ways that they turn the character into something deeper than just that iconic, you know, hard boiled cop or uh, this socially awkward uh, professorial kind of character or, or with Queenie where it's, you know, there's just enough of the of the Betty Boop to to keep her interesting and engaging, but then there's also this deeper level of no, she's really uh, capable and able to stand up for herself if if push comes to shove. And so I I think that's it's so great to watch all of them just be really full, well rounded uh, characters, and um, and Tina's no exception to that. She definitely uh, has a lot more depth there than just that initial read that we get on her. Okay. How about, how did you feel about it, Lynn? What did you think of uh, Tina? Yeah, I I agree with that assessment. That um, the way that she was portrayed, and yeah, um, it it could have very easily gone in a different direction. But yeah, I I think um, the way that she was portrayed portrayed um, made her a little bit deeper than what you see. And you know, um, what what I also remember very clearly too was that one scene, um, the near execution scene, where they pull her memories out and then stick it in the um, in that pond, so you could actually see her memories. And you know, I I, I think that was also uh, you know a very interesting um, uh, show of what her character is, and even gave an interesting clue, you know, that was important to the plot a little bit later on down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that that um, has always kind of concerned me with the the world of Potter uh, is how um, it's such a uh, the, the 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 sense of justice of of punishment, criminal acts, that sort of stuff. There seems the 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 consequences seem over the top in many. Oh cases. yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> There seem to be arbitrary rules and harsh punishments. <laughs> it seems to be the order of the day in the in the Wizarding world, um, and I'm and I, I'm not sure how to deal with that. Um, you know, like even you know, even like authority figures are often portrayed as just being arbitrary. Um, like for example, when the Makusa president, she she's mad at Tina for not telling her about Newt. Well, she tried to <laughs> when she when, when she came to the Aurora's office, and you threw her out. She was trying to bring Newt in. I mean, it's just, um, you know, the authority figures are often in, in Rowling's world are often less competent than everyone else. In fact, it's almost the case is the further down the, the structure you go, the more competent the people are. Does that strike you as being on target or am I off base? What, what do you think? 
Now, I, I think that's that's pretty consistent with what we've seen throughout the the series that you really couldn't trust the adults in the uh, in the you know the basic Harry Harry Potter series um, because there were just so many things that they did that were just so untrustworthy. The kids pretty much had to rely on themselves, like you know Dumbledore's army, for example, right? Right. Yeah, and so I think this is just the, an extension of what we saw. Um, you know, seventy years later. Okay. So. Or, right. Yeah. I, I think I think it has to fit too that the because the it, this is when you're moving outside of the realm of a of a kids book and no longer can we say it's just oh well kids actually have a different understanding than the rest of us. You actually have to show that well these these people are actually uh, slightly incompetent. They are not right. doing what they need to be doing, and and I think it really goes back to that sense of. Um, the fickleness of magic and the ease with which you can do things and how simple it is to be kind of uh, bewitched for lack of a better term into, uh, you know, just having that power and getting lazy about all of the other things that you do. And so yeah. arbitrary and absolute uh, definitely come up as, uh, as sisters in, in that kind of situation. So the more power that you have, the, the greater the consequences there need to be for the abuse of that power. Um, right. That's, that's, that's not a bad way of looking at it. Um, although I have to say, you know, executing people by drowning them in acid while keeping them pacified with pleasant memories of their past, that does <laughs> that seems to be a really, that seems <laughs> really over the top punishment. Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I definitely agree with that. Well, and that's why I think I, I like Newt's stance at the end when, uh, because I think he's, He's not a pacifist in your traditional sense of like, I'm not going to confront things, but he gets to the end and he's more intrigued about learning the whole story than he is about just solving the problem. And and so right. everyone else gets there and their, their solution to the problem is, well, the obscurial needs to be dealt with because it killed someone. And so, and that's, that's just it. And he's more interested in trying to figure out what the whole story is. And because of that, he actually is able to get to the whole story and to, to see beyond the just the issue of the obscurial, but also that there was someone inside that was that was working this issue. Yeah, you know, from a some of a Christian point of view, I mean, it's a, it's a redemption idea. Is you know the 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 authorities, the Makuza authorities in this case, uh, they're very black and white. You know, that's evil. Blast it. You right. Know, that's, right. It, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Whereas Newt sees credence. And wants to, he sees a boy in pain who has a power he can't control and he wants to help him. You know, right. it's, in a sense, this obscurial is almost like a mental illness. If, if you were to equate it with a, a real world problem, um, you know, it, it, that where it boils out in violence. And his solution is, I want to understand. I want to care. And, you know, and he offers a hand of, you know what we would call charity or love uh, to him, um, as opposed to what the other solution was, which was to to bl to blast him to, because as sort of a re retributive justice as opposed to right. redemptive. Uh, so I thought, yeah, that that's a that was a good point. Thank you for for bringing that out. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, one of the other things I wanted to kind of to get at is. Um, I wanted to mention the interesting thing about the the, the New Salem Preservation Society. Uh, this woman, Mary Lou Barebones, who has ad apparently adopted these kids. Um, she's kind of taken them 
in and is using them as a sort of a, a workforce to advance her cause. We don't know why she has this problem with the Wizarding World, where I suppose we're supposed to presume it's the sort of a religious uh, bias behind it. Um, although um, there's lots of trappings of, of of religiosity of what we would recognize of a, of a fundamentalist viewpoint religion um, without it being explicit. So I, I do appreciate them not explicitly making her into a like a fundamentalist Christian uh, right. bigot, you know, that sort of thing that that would be hard to to, to carry. But they, they, they I mean, it looks like they were operate out of a church and there's a lot of things that have that that feeling to it. Um, one of the things I found interesting is one of the children is mentioned modesty. The one that they originally think has the obscurial was adopted out of a family of 12. She wasn't even an orphan. We get, we, and I think we're touching on uh, that societal understanding that I think you mentioned, Thomas, like that in that time period, there were these big families, there were the Irish families, Italian families. They couldn't always feed everyone. And sometimes the children were put in orphanages, not because they were actually orphans, but because they couldn't be fed. Um, and it sort of hits at a, at, at a, a world, um, at the grittiness of the reality of the world as it was, uh, it's not an idealized world here that we're working with. Yeah, and I, I like that. I like that take on it as a as a contrast to the magical world when you know you can walk into a suitcase and be in a laboratory that's infinitely large uh, mm. with all these fantastic beasts. There's still a lot of dirt to deal with in our real world where we are. Right. Even for the even for the wizards. Yeah. Well, now, um, if if we're seeing that this film was set in the late 1920s, yeah, um, in New York, wasn't that around the time of the Great Depression? Or the was that a little bit before? Uh, this would have been just before the Depression. So the Depression started in 1929. The, the crash was October 29. Okay. So this is probably like just before that. This is this is the Roaring Twenties. The the the, um, but of course. We, in the in in our history classes, we learned that the twenties were a time of oh, you know, the Great Gatsby and lots of money. But this shows that this there was still there were and there always will be the poor people, the people living in slums and stuff. And we see a lot of them. I mean, um, uh, Barebones, uh, Barry Lou Barebones has a lot of these street kids that she gets to work for her on the condition that they you know they get they get to. Uh, have some soup on the condition they hand out her pamphlets. And there's a, she's not a nice person. <laughs> right. I mean, just to put it nicely, to put it uh, uh, bluntly, she, you know, she beats her kids and, you know, she's a, she's a child abuser. She's, she's not loving in any sense. She's just a, she's just a bad person all around in this. Uh, uh, and it, she's a, a fairly flat, thin character. There's not much there, not even much emotion there really in her. Um, she's sort of a, just a, sort of a, a symbol really more than anything mm -hmm. else. Uh, so uh, trying to think of uh, other things. Is there any other uh, points that you'd like to bring out? Um, I have one last bit that I want to bring out, but if you have something, anything else that stood out to you that we haven't discussed. The one thing that bothers me about the movie <laughs> <laughs> I, and that I really want to know, this is like the burning question in the back of my mind. And because uh, Redmayne plays it so well, the first time, that he switches his case over to um, Muggle uh, Muggle worthy Muggle Muggle worthy. Yeah, and turns it around. The looks that he gives the uh, the the officer, 
I, I wonder if he ever knows what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. The muggle sees it, but not him. But not him. Right, That's like right. he never knows what's actually being seen on the other end of that, uh, of that case. Well, that Hufflepuff scarf. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. That's yep. true. That's we true. We find out that he's a Hufflepuff. Um, Lynn, anything that, uh, that, you, that stands out for you that, that we haven't discussed yet? That you know, gets? I was just kind of thinking uh, – so the Obscurio uh, claimed two victims, I think, during the film. Yeah. That it yep. sounded about right. And yep. so I was just thinking it's very interesting, the choice of victims. So the first one was that, that senator character who we first mm -hmm. saw in that newspaper office, right? And right. so uh, – and then, of course, the second victim was that, um, was that um, abusive mother. So right. it just kind of makes me wonder, um, is there any sort of rhyme or reason as to why those particular two were chosen to be the Obscurial's um, victims? I mean, this might this might yeah. be throwing a, a, a tangent in the works, but, you know, it, no, it no, just I, made me wonder. I think it's because, uh, you know, the Obscurial was, you know, was an expression of Credence's pain and... Uh, you know, the senator was so cruel to them in the newspaper office yeah. um, and, and, you know, unnecessarily, like he went out of his way to be a jerk <laughs> to him. Right. And yeah, I think true. that that I think that's what motivated that action. And then um, Credence didn't act out against his mother when she beat him. But when she went for the girl, his sister, you know, his, his adopted sister, that's when the the obscurial went after her um so which i think speaks to his character a little bit his, his not not character as in story character but his internal character his his integrity um where it wasn't you know he he wasn't wielding power because i'm strong he he actually wanted to hold it in but when someone he loved his sister was being attacked unjustly he let it out and and that's it it's Sort of an interesting choice that they did there. Again, it shows how Newt was right to to kind of seek the you know to seek to reach out to him to find right. the good in him. Mm -hmm. And apparently, this is a character that's supposed to be coming back, or that's yeah, supposed to that's be playing true. some kind of larger role mm. in the uh, in the canon. So we'll we'll see. Again, I think that's the really cool part about being involved in this in this series because we don't have any books to go back and reference and we don't know where this story is going. <laughs> so that's actually that was I wanted to make that my last point um in, of discussion. The this the first uh eight movies were based on books and they were movies made from books. This is a Harry Potter universe, it's not a Potter movie technically, but it's a Harry Potter verse movie made from just from a screenplay from a jk rowling screenplay How, do you, thomas since you said this is your favorite of the films uh, i'll go go to you first on this do you think that this is why this is your favorite because it doesn't bear the burden of being an adaptation um it's possible i actually really liked the movies for what they were i i thought that they did a great job of taking what they needed from the book and then kind of throwing away the rest and doing what they needed to do to complete a movie. Uh, the last few got really heavy and, yeah. and, and long. And, and uh, I, I think they would have done well to go back to that kind of initial, what's really important here. Let's get it on the screen and, and be done with it. 
And I was really interested that this one opens up so much more of the world because it does what a good movie does, where it knows it's limited to the two hours. It asks a bunch of questions and then lets it go. And and that, I think, is is one of the really powerful things about a movie versus a book, where you can kind of explore things in a book. In a movie, you just have to throw it out there and hope it sticks and just move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, J.K. Rowling also had what she called the Scottish book. I think that's what she called it. So she pretty much mapped out everything in the wizarding world and, of course, picked what she uh, what she included for the Harry Potter books. But she there's still a whole huge universe that is still in her head that um, now she gets a chance to to um, express it in these five films. And right. so, yeah, and so I think that's also what, what will make this interesting. She doesn't have to be constrained or the screenwriters don't have to be constrained with, oh, this is in the book and this is in the, in the book. Yeah, they don't have to be constrained with this. So she could really take it in whatever direction she wants to take it. And it's interesting to point out that the director, David Yates, um, start, he, he has directed every Harry Potter film since the fifth one, uh, Order of Order of the Phoenix, I think, was where his first one. And he's directed them all since then. I'm pretty sure that's all yeah. of them. And and I think he's going to be – he's been contracted to direct all five of these films. The, so it's at least there's going yeah. to be that kind of continuity, unlike with the Harry Potter right. films. Um, there was actually a loss of continuity from director to director because right. – you know, so you you could really see this just, you know, that there's just seems to be some disjointedness between at least the first three or four films. And then yeah. after a while, you see the continuity um, once um, David Yates took over. Yeah, I think that, that benefits. I mean, if you if, if you could imagine if you'd had different directors directing the the six uh, Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit films, uh, mm-hmm. whatever troubles or problems those movies had we could talk about those another time uh but they, at least they had a continuity of vision i was always concerned when when we heard that guillermo del toro was going to do the hobbit and he's a very different vision than peter jackson and right and and that sort of thing and that's so that's something that i think by putting david yates in and and getting and saying this guy has the vision for the potterverse let's keep him uh on these movies um so um, I think that's it. Uh, I mean, we're, we're certainly not done talking about Harry Potter on SQPN. I mean, this is, uh, this is our bread and butter. When the new movie comes out, I'm sure we're going to talk about it again then. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a good opportunity to talk about it now. So, uh, I just want to say this. So that's it from us on Fantastic Beasts. And so I want to put it out to you, the listeners. What do you think of this movie, Fantastic Beasts and where to find them as well as our discussion? Uh, did we miss anything that you thought was really important point that we didn't bring up or do you agree or disagree? We want to hear from you. So visit sqpn.com slash secrets or the StarQuest Facebook page. Uh, just go to Facebook and look for SQPN and leave us some feedback uh, on the show, on the episode link there, or send us an email to secrets at sqpn.com. Uh, we'd love to include your feedback in future shows. Uh, you can find relevant links for our discussion on our show notes on sqpn.com. And be sure, like I said, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in and remember to write a review there. Like, comment, and share to help us grow to reach more people. And until next time, uh, Thomas Senhuro, thank you, you for thank <laughs> you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. 
Uh, Thanks for having Lynn, me. <laughs> great, thank you. Uh, Lynn Francisco, thank you as well. Pleasure. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on StarQuest. 